Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a great crew here in the studio. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning. Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Philip. Hello, guys. And we've got a couple guests on today. Dr. Jason Warner, who's the Kansas State Cow-Calf Extension Specialist. Good morning, Dr. Warner. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. And we've got Maddie Mankey, who's a PhD student here at BCI. It's going to share some of her research. Good morning, Maddie. Good morning. So we're going to visit today a little bit about cattle inventory counts, how those may affect your operation, and what are some of those changes that may occur. We'll also talk about winter management of bulls and cows. What are some of the things that I want to do this winter to make sure that I have a successful breeding season next spring and calving season? And then Maddie's going to share with us some of her research that she's done on on beef dairy calves, and we'll talk through those things. Before we get into those topics, I did have a question for you guys this morning. And recently with the holidays, you know, you get together, the family, some of the other stuff. We're getting together with our family and and our kids were quizzing me on some of the texting abbreviations. I wanted to see if you guys could fare better than I did. Maddie, you may have to sit this one out because you're going to know the answers to these, but I want to see what these guys can do. You fill in if they don't get one. Got it. All right. The first one is an easy one. SMH. If someone texts you, Bob, SMH, what does that mean? So much heat. So much heat. Okay. Anybody else? Maddie? Shaking my head. Shaking my head. Oh. Okay. All right. This one, Dustin, is for you. TTYL. Talk to you. T-T-Y. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. <laughs> oh, Dustin Stetson. All right, Jason. Here's here's one. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought I was young enough to be excluded. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, well, I guess we'll see. <laughs> T-L-D-R. T-L-D-R. I got nothing on that one. I don't know. I got nothing. Too long, didn't read. Ah, oh, <laughs> there you go. You can use that one on email, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Philip. I M O. I know this one. Yeah, I, I would suspect you do. Because you use this one, I bet. Yes. <laughs> I mean something. I don't know what the O would stand for. Um, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, oh, of course okay. Bob would know that one. Okay. <laughs> Bob, Bob starts all his texts to me with, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Now he can know how to abbreviate it. <laughs> this is wrong. All right, uh, Maddie, this is your chance to take it. F T W. I don't got, I don't got a guess. For the win. Oh. You could have had it. I tried oh to set you up for the win. <laughs> All right. So now, now we've know a few more of those and Bob, you can, you mm. can text with your kids now. Yeah. If it's not a thumbs up, they don't get much of a text. <laughs> don't even take time for the time. No, better. no. Excellent. Well, let's let's talk a little bit, some of the changes in the industry. And, and, and we know we go through cycles up and down with supply and demand. Dustin, give us kind of an update of where we are today and how that might, and then we'll talk about how that might impact our operations. So, yeah, I think we'll just start with the feedlot because I think, what, a week or two ago, they came out with some news, uh, feedlot placement report, and they had a, like a second consecutive, kind of a large, maybe an unexpected feedlot placement and so I think think through that there's a lot of things you know they had more than what they expected thus what does that do for future placements they talked mm-hmm. about or, or I guess you could talk about why you know probably some droughts I guess we've had a lot of may, may, were they placing lighter cattle then or well, or that was part of it probably part of it um, yeah, they said that imports from Mexico were up 49 percent so imports some of those calves instead of maybe being 
you know, backgrounded for a little bit, went straight into a feedlot. Uh, but then they also thought prices are probably one of the main and drivers of that. Still sending heifers right. to the feedlot. They didn't say anything about the heifers, but but you think about future placements, right? And then if once if it's if pulling forward, once, then they're yeah yeah they start pulling back heifers, retaining heifers, and what's that going to do to prices, and how's that going to impact producers' decisions on? Be interesting what that percentage is right now, because up until this point, heifer slaughter, fed slaughter has been pretty high, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, that's just interesting to things to think through all the different possibilities and what's that going to have an impact on more future prices, I guess. And Jason, what do you, what do you see as far as cow-calf producers and how they're responding to some of those changes? Are we saving more heifers? Are we looking to expand? I know there's been some limiting factors like drought in many areas of the country really has been. I think for me, as I look at it, it's a wide range of, of conditions and a lot of variability around the country and, and to an extent locally for us here too. And we think about our regional areas close to where we're sitting today, but certainly around the country, it, it's a lot of variability. And, and I think there's going to be some areas where folks are going to be really uh, inclined to want to try to expand, capitalized on and capitalize on higher forecasted feeder calf prices the next three, four years. But then I think there's a lot of situations where it's 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 cost, it's moisture prohibitive, those types of things. So I, I think it's gonna be highly variable as to what extent we'll we'll see that and the implications that'll have for, for female prices going forward and and, uh, and what replacement inventories look like, all of that. Because it's got long-term implications. Absolutely, and those decisions on the cow-calf side if I save heifers now, I'm not just saving them for next year, right? It's long-term change in my herd. And Bob and Philip, you guys have talked before about it's, it's somewhat resource dependent on whether I even can make that decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I liked what Jason said in that I think if I locally, because of rainfall or uh, access to some byproduct feeds or access to uh, crop aftermath or something like that, that I can expand, I might be very willing to. But if if I have to purchase feed, that that may be cost prohibitive as well. So I think you might have great regional differences. And even within a region, just individual ranch, what are their resources? And it's particularly, it's feed and forage resources because there's, there's heifers out there to buy. But do I have the ability to really expand my herd or not? And yeah, I, I, I wish I could, but I don't know that that's going to work. Well, I was just thinking, too, I mean, <clears throat> trying to capitalize on those higher prices in the next couple of years. I mean, if heifer's going to take two years to at least to get a calf on the ground at this point. So if you're looking at buying, I'm, there are probably several places around the country that are in drought, and guys are culling bred cows because they've got to shrink the herd. So looking at buying bred cows at this point, they're going to have a calf on the ground next year. If you're able to expand in a situation where you've got the feed resources, that may be a very good opportunity to, to do that. One of my concerns with the expansion at this time is I'm bringing in animals, whether I'm saving them or I'm purchasing them, they're at a very high price and there's no guarantee the calf price will stay as high or go up. Jason, you talked about it might go up. What do I need to think about as far as risk management? What are some of the tools that I may want to put in place to mitigate that risk a little bit? There's a lot of different tools that are out there for folks, but I think just having a mindset of what you just said, having a risk management mindset, you know, I think that's going to be really key for folks as they as they go forward. Whether that is you're trying to, you know, take advantage of higher calf prices and maybe lock that in, do some some forward contracting. Uh, looking at the different types of insurance products that are out there, 
some of that also too can be on the forage and feed side of things as well um i know dustin can speak to this but we've probably got as many tools and products out there available to for producers we probably had in a long time uh and those are those are they're they're constantly changing but th- being able to use those things i think is going to be really important going forward yeah i mean you two things that popped in my mind were some kind of contracting and then the insurance products uh would be my two ones that come to the top of my head but then also you know is there any way you can diversify you know maybe have a fall calving and a spring calving herd some kind of diversification is another risk management tool spread, as well. spread out the price risk, right right yeah. is what you're yeah. worried about there and I, and I think any of those could be good as, as you guys think about risk management even from the bringing in new animals or keeping new animals is there anything on the health or nutrition side that I should be thinking about to manage that risk well, on the health side, we do like a period of, of quarantine before you bring in new animals. So I want to separate the new animals from the current herd, and that provides protection both directions. And so usually what we talk about is is a 30-day or so quarantine period. And what I'm looking for is signs of illness during that time frame. And, and so does that prevent all problems? No, it doesn't. But that and instituting a vaccine program so that, my her- that the new cattle and the old cattle are kind of on the same plane as far as a vaccine program and then that time to see if they're harboring disease right when they come in. Because a lot of times, shipping them, moving them, if they're going to break with disease, it's going to be in that time frame. From a feed perspective, we're a little late in the year at this point for for this winter, but you can forward contract your winter feed bill, too. You can talk to your local feed co-op or wherever, and you can forward contract that back in early fall or, or late summer so that you can capitalize on lower prices during that time of the year instead of paying cash price through the winter when feed costs are usually higher. Absolutely. And, and one of the things to think about is, does expansion make sense to you? And if so, have some sort of risk management plan because no guarantee of, of higher prices. And, and we were talking about winter and feed. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. As I think about bringing, and I'll, I'll give you a scenario. We've got a cow-calf herd, spring calving, we're coming into winter. What are some of the things I need to be thinking about in managing both the cows and the bulls? And I'll tell you my goals. I want to have a successful calving season with calves that do well, followed by a successful breeding season. So, Jason, I'm going to start with you. What are what are maybe one or two things you want me thinking about coming into winter? I think as we go into winter for spring calving cow herds, you really need to be taking a proactive approach to assessing where body condition is on a herd basis. Uh, understand when those cows are gonna calve relative to you know, your timeline of, of your ability to be able to make change and, and, uh, and, and some adjustments in plane and nutrition and do that economically uh, and be able to do that in a manner where you can, you can feasibly do that going up to the, to the start of the calving season. Uh, that's, that's really gonna be really key and that allow you to make some, some strategic you know, targeted supplementation decisions, that, that's going to be really important too. So uh, I think just being really strategic, really being proactive there. Um, and in the long run, the idea would be is right, you should be able to, to save on your overall supplementation or nutrition program uh, rather than having to, to really make a lot of change in a set of cows to increase condition going into calving in a short time period that's really challenging to do so yeah i think the approach and, I, and i've heard it described as no bad days or very right. few bad days right. right so we're trying to manage that i don't have things that i had i then later have to overcome bob how does that uh, affect if we're thinking about the 
bulls. Yeah. Let's think about the male side. Do I do I use the same approach, or is there something different I need to do with the males as we go through winter? Any concerns? No, it's really quite similar in the males as far as the, their nutritional need. In that, you know, the bulls are a, a they're a big animal. They're a heavyweight animal, but they never lactate and they never have a pregnancy. And so there's some positives and negatives uh, from a bull nutrition standpoint. And so a lot of times that puts them in the same ballpark as a, uh, you know, mid-gestation cow as far as, you know, for he's a little bigger, but those are the demands he has. So the good thing is it's not a particularly high demand, but it's, it's high enough that a poor quality forage alone is not going to be sufficient. So we're talking about a supplementation if protein is necessary or if energy is necessary in order to maintain. And again, I'm going to say just like what Jason said with the cows, I want to maintain body condition. I don't want them really dropping a lot of body condition. They don't need to get fat, but they certainly need to maintain that. And then the other thing that we specifically think about with bulls is uh, protecting their reproductive health. Uh, So any veterinarian that's uh, done breeding soundness exams on bulls post a hard winter, you've seen some, uh, some, some scrotal frostbite. You see some really poor sperm development and things like that in bulls that, that had kind of a rough winter. And so how do you prevent that? Well, I need some protection from the wind. They might need bedding, uh, keep them out of the mud. And so those are pretty typical for what I would ask for the cows too. But sometimes we can really damage the reproductive capability of that bull if he has a tough winter. Yeah. So you worry, you worry about the scrotum testicles and that's one of the areas that we have to protect. I I'm still stuck on. So you said bulls don't lactate and don't get pregnant. Yeah. I went to college, so I know that. Okay. But I have a question for you and I need an honest answer. Have you ever pregnant a bull? Um, I need an honest answer. I'm going to just say no, (laughs) because that's what I want to (laughs) say. They're they're always open. That's the that's the old. Well, hey, at least you haven't called one pregnant, right? I have never called one pregnant. See, I could have I could have asked you that. I may have placed my arm in one. Yeah, and everybody else is laughing. They'll they'll put a yearling in, and yeah, we get yeah. That's a funny joke. So, Philip, I wanted to ask you, and specifically, I've heard the term fetal programming. Tell me a little bit about that, what that might be, and and does that have any role in this conversation? Um, yes, so it definitely has a role in this conversation because a lot of research out there is looking at the effect during that last trimester um, uh, on that fetus and the the subsequent performance of that fetus, that's what we're talking. So when we say talk about fetal programming, it's what are we doing while that calf is in utero that sets it up or changes its ability to perform after birth. And in that and that's all the way through life. But we've seen it's not just, you know, up to weaning or the first few months after birth. It's all the way through the life of that animal. And so um, there are lots of different things that we've found that can affect that environment and, and weather and things like that and just stress on the, on the dam. But nutrition has been a big target or a big area of emphasis um, for the fetal programming and trying to, to figure out how best to manage the nutrition of that cow so that we can optimize the performance of that calf after it's born. And it's kind of kind of similar to the no bad days that we mm-hmm. talked about. Jason, what, what are your thoughts on fetal programming? Is there anything I should do differently on my operation, or should I just follow kind of what you recommended earlier, keep them at a good weight get, or weight throughout? You know, it's interesting. I think it, when you think about probably being the most efficient with your resources over the course of time, 
trying to just maintain weight on a set of cows is, is probably going to be the, the most appropriate way to go about that. But understanding there's, there's going to be variations with that, you know, throughout the year, as, as Philip alluded to. But I think two points that I see when we talk about fetal programming is one is the conversation is always kind of geared around, you know, comparing a set of females that are usually underfed or more nutritionally restricted versus a set of females that are not. So I don't know that it's been maybe quite as closely looked at comparing, you know, just a, a typical supplementation program versus higher levels of supplementation or feeding and understanding what that change can be. And then to Bob's point, to me, a, a very interesting uh, thought is, is, well, what's the impact on male progeny that are kept for subsequent breeders? We strictly look primarily at, at steer and heifer progeny, but I don't think it's been really closely looked at what's the impact on, on male fertility in bulls from different planes of nutrition, you know, depending on what, what the dam was. So I think that's, those are some very interesting things we always got to keep in mind when we have these types of conversations. Well, I'd be interested in what these guys think and that, you know, I think this concept of fetal programming, where it has changed my thinking was, let's talk about a, a group of cows that might be out on corn stalks. And, you know, the, the nutritional availability of corn stalks early in grazing is pretty good, but it declines as those leaves and husks are, are consumed. And when I was younger and earlier, in my career, I would have been pretty okay with letting those cows kind of lose some weight because my, my, my cost is so cheap and then put a little bit of weight on them after I pull them off the corn stalks. After I've been taught some of this concepts of fetal programming, I'm a little less aggressive doing that. I, I'd like to pull those cows off the corn stalks or supplement them while they're still on corn stalks and not allow them to lose that body condition that I used to be comfortable with, and I'm less comfortable with that now. Is that, would you agree with that, or am I being overcautious? I don't think you're necessarily being overcautious there. It all depends on the timeline, right, well, relative to when those females are, are going to calve, and how, how quickly and appropriately can you allow that, that weight to come back. I think for, when we think about like a later calving cow herd, you know, for maybe a cow herd that's not gonna calve till April, May, June time frame of the year, I think we have a little bit more flexibility to be able to do that with much more challenging if they're going to start calving in the middle of February. Yep, absolutely. And I, and I think so as you guys are describing it, there's having a plan going into winter for both my bulls and my cows is important. And as you've talked about, keeping that maintenance, maintaining a good body weight, not getting behind and having to play catch up can be more efficient through the process. So Maddie, I appreciate you sitting in with us. So Maddie Mankey is a, a graduate student. She's working on her PhD program. We've had her on before to talk about a little bit of her research. So she's done some research both in the feed yard, looking at disease and looking at some of the common pathologies. But this project that you just completed was a little bit different. So you're working with a different animal than a, a feed yard animal. Tell us, tell us what you've done recently. Yeah, so I recently just completed the data collection process of a castration study on beef on dairy calves. So they're treated a little different than beef cattle, what I'm used to, but we looked at animal welfare and behavior measures and calf performance measures. So what were some of the, as you think about calf performance, and, and these would have been young calves still on the bottle, being supplemented with milk, another supplement. What are some of the performance measures that, that are important? Yeah, so these calves were um, individually confined into their own pens in a barn. So we were able to um, feed them a calf starter diet along with uh, two bottles of milk a day. 
And so we were able to look at individual calf intake and then they got body weights measured every seven days. So we can relate that back to average daily gain and a feed to gain ratio. And Philip, you've looked at some of the beef dairy research that you've been doing recently involved in several of those in calf ranches. Uh, is that a pretty typical feeding plan? What do you see on some of those operations? And how much variability is there in how those beef dairy calves are fed? Yeah, that's what I would say would be the, the target program or the, the what they're shooting for. But there's there is some variability because they get the opportunity to use some milk sources that are not just milk replacer. They get um, non-sellable milk from dairies. They get rejected milk from dairy co-ops. They get uh, different sources of milk powder to or cheese powder to make the milk replacer with. So there, there's lots of different combinations of of ways to produce that milk or to or milk to feed to those calves and it's not necessarily consistent for the same calf throughout the whole feeding period he may get milk replacer for you know three weeks and then he gets waste milk for a week and then he's back on milk replacer or those types of things and then from the starter feed perspective oh there's lots of different variations on starter feed formulations um, some using steam flake corn some with roughage most of them without roughage um, I've seen some with uh, whole corn and a protein pellet. Uh, there's lots of different variations on that starter feed formulation. Absolutely. And, then, and so they're getting some supplement along with their milk, which is what Maddie did in her trial. And Maddie, most uh, recommendations would say the younger we castrate calves, the better it is for their welfare. And you're doing this study to look at two different methods to see if there's a difference. And we talked about the performance measures. You mentioned behavior. How did you monitor behavior? What did you look at on, on those calves? So we have a few different ways of monitoring behavior on these calves. We have overhead cameras set up so we can be able to go back and look at um, any wound licking that we see at the castration site. We also took wound pictures every seven days so we can go back and we can score those wound pictures and see if there is any difference between those um, two ways of castrating. And then every day I went and did an approach test. And so I walked up to each calf in their pen and if they made any physical advancement towards me, that was a yes to approach the human. If they looked at me sideways and then went back and turned their head, that was a no. So and, and basically you were looking there, are they feeling good? Cause you did it between feedings, feeding twice a day, you did it split between the two feedings. So in theory, if they're feeling good, they're coming up to you going, hey, bottle person, where's my bottle? Correct, yeah, I did it at noon every day. So uh, they, it was between the two feedings, but the thought was that if they were feeling good, they'd get up to see me. And I did, I don't have any um, results back yet, but I think I saw a little bit of difference when they started to um, slough their scrotums. They, they laid down and they might've looked at me, but they didn't want to come say hi. Yeah. So, and, and between the two treatments that you've got in this trial, you're blinded, meaning you know all the results for individual calves, but you don't have any idea which treatment was applied to which calf, which is a lot of times how we set up these trials. So even though you saw differences among individuals, we don't know which, and I'm also blind in this trial, so we don't know which group is which, right? Yeah, that's been kind of fun too, because I get, I'm already getting questions on, well, did you see a difference? And no, because I don't know which calf got which treatment. So that's 
that's the fun thing about research is being blind through that whole process and not having any bias towards the treatments and it's going to be fun to see what the but what the results are excellent and we will have you back to find out more because i think that's an important area we're seeing more and more of the beef on dairy calves this will give us a good piece of information to put down to what are some of those differences and what do we notice even after castration so thanks for joining us and thanks to dr warner for joining us today as well we appreciate you guys sitting in and great conversation as always if you have any questions comments things you'd like us to talk about you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu mm -hmm.